is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be here with you tonight. We are starting off a, a series called Conversations That Matter, looking at some of the questions that our community has, your friends may have. Uh, next Sunday, we're tackling the question, where is God in my pain? So if you're here tonight and you are suffering, or you know someone in your life who is suffering, t- t- next Sunday night would be a great night to come. Uh, the week after, we look at the question, um, haven't we outgrown religion? So in our 21st century, surely this God stuff doesn't really matter. Uh, tonight, uh, Alice and I are, are team preaching on, the, on this important question, uh, does Christianity denigrate women? Does Christianity oppress and put down women? It's an important question. It's a valid question. Because sadly, we've experienced or heard just the horror stories of women who are made to feel inferior in the church. Uh, Women who have no voice in the church. Uh, women who are bullied in the church with a Bible verse tacked on for justification. Or, or women who are made to feel like objects rather than cherished and honored in the church as they should be. But it's not just in the church, is it? Let's be honest, we've had, we've had centuries Centuries of women who have been oppressed and suppressed and violated in the world. We've had girls who have been denied education. We've had women being denied the vote. We've been, had women being treated as property, not just people. And as we sit here in the comforts of Kirribilli, Girls and women across the globe are being violated in male-dominated cultures. Now, for me, the, the objectification of women is just despicable. When women are, are seen purely as pleasure objects, that is despicable. When women are just treated as a bit of property, that is despicable. As a father of five boys, as a father of five boys, my my deepest longing, my deepest desire for my boys is that they they value women, that they cherish women, that they respect women, that they, they treat all women with equal dignity and equal worth and equal value because because that's how God sees women. That's how God sees women. He loves women. He values women. He empowers women. He celebrates women. He empowers womanhood as a beautiful thing. I love this verse from Scripture. It's on the screen from Song of Songs. Who is this who shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, or inspiring as an army with banners? Who is this, he says, And now, who is God talking about? Women. Women. It's just beautiful. Who else has this glorious vision? Who else could create something which is blindingly beautiful and yet robustly strong? And the answer is God. 
because God created, created these beautiful things called women. And God loves them and values them, and they are equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity to any man who has ever been created. So, so religion might denigrate women. And individual Christians may denigrate women, and messed up churches might denigrate women, but, but God never does. Because God says of women, you are equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity. And we see that right from our first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created humankind, humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women are both created in the image of God. They're both created as rational beings, as relational beings. God did not just create men in his image. He created men and women in his image. It's a massive truth. Please never let anyone tell you that God sees women as being less than men. That is a lie. In fact, if I read Genesis correctly, it is, it is maleness and femaleness together that perfectly image God. You know, in Genesis 2, when God created man, Adam, up until that point, everything had been good. Everything is good, but, but one thing is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And he brings all these animals, but none of these animals complement Adam. And so he creates woman as the perfect complement, the perfect companion. And only at that point do you get the full revelation of the image of God, the glory of God. You need both male and female to fully understand the image of God. And yes, when you come to the Bible, God's often described in male pictures or, or male language, but then you've got these beautiful pictures of, of God being like a mother, like a mother who is caring and kind and gentle. And I'm not saying that men can't be caring and kind and gentle. What I'm saying is that you need this full picture of male and female together to fully understand God. So please don't tell me that God denigrates women. They're equal in worth. They're equal in salvation. Galatians 3, I love this verse, a beautiful verse. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. This glorious truth that Jesus Christ redeems all people, whether they are Jewish or Gentile in ethnicity, whether they are slave or free in society, whether they are male or female in gender. And we might add whether they are old or young, educated or uneducated, whether they are homosexual or heterosexual, whether they're able-bodied or not. He said, none of those things matter. What really matters is that Jesus Christ loves you and redeems you. You're not defined by any of these things. We're all equal in terms of our salvation. There is no superiority. There is no special favors, no first, no last. We are all equal children of God, loved by God, saved by God, and cherished by God. So please, church, let's get rid of any gender superiority or any hint of male chauvinism. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that male and female are identical. Galatians 3 does not mean we ignore all differences and treat everyone as one homogeneous lump. 
that the Jews are still Jews in Christ, and Gentiles are still Gentiles in Christ, and slaves are still slaves in Christ, and free are still free in Christ, and men are still men in Christ, and women are still women in Christ. God made us male and female. I'm not embarrassed to say that. There are obvious differences, physiological, neurological. And I know there's a spectrum. Today is not the day to go into that debate. You know, and when my boys ask me, Dad, what's the difference between men and women? I, I don't go into those just anatomical differences. What I want my boys to do is to respect women and uphold women and celebrate women and learn from women and value women. Why? Because God does. And maybe you're saying, come on, Paul, I mean, I can quote all these verses in the Bible where God denigrates women. In Numbers chapter 4, where women are excluded from the priesthood or women being excluded from the court of tabernacles or women being unclean in Leviticus. And I'm not denying any of those verses, but you know what? I bet I could find more verses than you could that seem to denigrate women. <laughs> but the point is that every verse has a context to it. You can't just pluck a verse out and say, look, that proves this. And you know what? I could also find all these verses that seem to denigrate men. You've got to read the Bible in context. And to refute that argument, I could list all these incredible women of God in the Old Testament who God lifted up and elevated. Rebecca was beautiful, shrewd, and energetic. Miriam, an incredible leader in Exodus. Deborah, the woman of wisdom, courage, faith, and leadership. Queen Esther, a whole books dedicated to her. Hannah, who was devoted to the Lord. And, and when you come to the family tree of Jesus, it's not just men in his genealogy. You're shocked to see four women there. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all in the family line of Jesus, because God loves women. And Jesus came along. And Jesus loved and valued women more than any other human being in history. And in a culture where women were looked down on, Jesus treated women with respect and dignity and honor and worth. I love this quote by Sue Boland. She says this, Christianity is not anti-female and horribly oppressive to women. In fact, nothing has elevated the status and value of women as much as biblical Christianity. I'll hand over to Ali to teach us more about that. Thanks, Paul. Before we get to the great bit about looking at Jesus, we're going to spend a little bit of time in early church history. And you have to know that history and me are not friends. The piece of the pie in a trivial pursuit game that was called history was the one that I used to dread. There's so much that I don't know. But what I do know is that when opposite sides of a story or an event in history say the same thing, that is very convincing evidence. And both Christian and non-Christian sources say the same things about the early church. Both report in their own ways that there was something about this Jesus movement that was extremely appealing to those who were considered second-tier humans in the surrounding culture. Perhaps you've heard that devout Jewish men had a daily prayer. 
Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman, or by the way, a Gentile or a slave. This was the prevailing religious world that Jesus arrived into. And the secular world? Well, that big thinker Aristotle thought that women were naturally inferior to men, physically, spiritually and intellectually. Unsurprisingly then, women and slaves grabbed hold of Jesus' teachings with both hands. They were assured of their intrinsic value, as Paul has spoken about. They were assured of an equal place in this new thing called church. No favouritism, no second-class humans. This was truly radical. Simon Smart from CPX writes... Sociologist Rodney Stark, who looked at a range of factors to account for the incredible growth in early Christianity, believes its popularity among women was vital. Christianity's view of the full equality of men and women before God was revolutionary and the implications profound. He estimates that perhaps two-thirds of the Christian community in the second century were women, And this is in direct contrast to the broader Greco-Roman world where women made up only a third of the population because female infanticide and death due to childbirth cut the numbers down. The early church was so full of women and slaves that its detractors felt that this made it an easy target. Celsus, who was Christianity's earliest and most persistent critic, pointed to the involvement of women as a cause for derision. Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonourable and stupid. Only slaves, women and little children. There is consensus that this Jesus movement was very welcoming of women, encouraging them to host and lead groups in their own homes, using whatever they had to share the good news of Jesus. The first three centuries of church gave women unthinkable freedoms and opportunities. They exercised a wide variety of influential roles. Apostle, benefactor, deacon, martyr, prophet, teacher. Michael Kruger writes, if early Christianity was a bad place for women, then it seems all the women who joined the movement never got the memo. To answer the question, did Christianity denigrate women? The answer is absolutely not. So what happened? Today is not the time to look at the next 17 centuries of church history and I'm not the one to do it. But unsurprisingly, the move away from Jesus' original plan involved money and power and the church adopting the worldly idea of leadership top down. The church becoming really intertwined with the culture that it found itself in. The Christ-centred Christianity of the early church was a blessed refuge for all humanity, including women. Christ-based Christianity is still and always will be a refuge for all humanity, including women.
So let's dig in now to the Christ of Christianity. The word Christ is the impressive title for Jesus. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word. Jesus was his first name, Messiah or Christ was his title, not a surname. It's a week late, but I've got a little bit of a dad joke for you. A Christian without Christ is just Ian, and he's no good to anyone. <laughs> there might be one in the front room. I've been waiting all day to find my Ian. <laughs> Christianity without Christ is honestly no good to anyone, and that is deadly serious. I want to head to three key moments in salvation history to see what it reveals of God's heart for women. The announcement of Jesus coming, the first time Jesus reveals he is the Messiah, and then the resurrection of Jesus. Now, please excuse us, we don't have time to flip to all of the, the um, references, the passages, but if you would like to know all of the references, I've got them printed out and I will happily give them to you afterwards. Right, firstly, this is going to feel like Christmas. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We read that God sent his messenger to a virgin called Mary, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. In this culture, that means that she was probably somewhere around 12 to 15. She is the first human to hear that the son of the Most High is about to enter the world. She is the first to know that God's plan for salvation for humanity is to use her to give birth to the Most High. She will be the earthly mother of the Son of God. This is huge news for one so young and female. It's news that the faithful in Israel have been waiting for for centuries do you find it fascinating that this news wasn't given to a gathering of the devout men of Israel? That it wasn't given to the high priest with the greatest access to Yahweh? It wasn't given to anyone of influence or power. The news was given to this faithful young woman called Mary. God trusted her with the news as he trusted her with her, his helpless son. And he did that because we see by her response, I am the Lord's servant. She had entrusted herself into his hands. I find this extraordinary. But maybe you're thinking, well, of course he told her. She's the one having the baby. But if you read earlier in Luke chapter 1, we see that it's, it's Zechariah who is told that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to have the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Zechariah was the priest with great responsibilities and privileges in God's temple. He was the obvious choice to, talk, to be told this news. But the even bigger news of the Messiah's birth is given to this young woman. And isn't this absolutely the way that our Father loves to do things? to turn our world upside down, to use the humble in, an, in a mighty way. The second snapshot is the account that we read in our New Testament um, reading. 
the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus initiated conversation with someone who had three strikes against her name. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan and therefore an enemy of the Jews and she had a questionable past. She had five husbands and the man that she was with currently is not her husband. Now we don't know whether this was from a shady past or whether in fact this poor woman had just been handed from man to man to man. What we do know is that this wouldn't have been the life that she looked forward to. She has known hardship. And she would have had her defences up. Her trust of men would have been really low. So when Jesus approaches her and asks for a drink of water, you can hear her saying, why are you talking to me? But there is something about how Jesus engages with her, how he sees her, he looks at her, and he loves her, that engages her in this conversation, with the result that Jesus reveals his identity to her. This is the first recorded time that he tells anyone that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And he tells a woman a Samaritan and someone with a questionable past. It's just not how a church committee would do it. This is a classic example of how Jesus relates to women in the Gospels with extraordinary grace. He sees them and he loves them. They're not property, they're not less than, they're not a means to an end, they're not disposable, but they're worthy of conversation. And in this case worthy of carrying the extraordinary news of Jesus to her whole town. If we were to read on in chapter 4, we see that this woman took this news to her town and said, everybody, come and see the man who told me everything I've done. Now, they did what was sensible and went and checked out for themselves what she had said. But this woman took the news of Jesus to her town Jesus looked at her with compassion, with the offer of forgiveness and the offer of a life radically different to anything she had experienced. And this is not a standalone encounter. So before we get to the third big moment, we'll just look at a couple of other accounts where Jesus sees, not just looks at, sees women. In Luke 8, there is an unnamed woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. She's run out of options. She has run out of hope. She is an exhausted, desperate woman. She's also a hidden woman because with the constant presence of blood, she is not welcome. She is an unclean presence in the Jewish community. On this day, hidden amongst the pressing crowds as Jesus walked through, In desperation, she reached out and and caught the edge of his cloak. And immediately, she had the sense that she was healed. The relief. But then the terror. Because Jesus said, who touched me? She thought she might have got away with it because the disciples were saying, oh, Master, there's people everywhere, people touching you everywhere. But Jesus knew that he needed to say something to this woman. She needed to know more 
than just being healed. She needed to know she had been seen. She needed to know that she was precious. She needed to know that she would be restored to dignity and to community. Daughter, says Jesus, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus saw the hidden woman, then and now. It's such a vivid story, as is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I hope you've wondered, where's the man? <laughs> Takes two for that. Where's the man, the other equally guilty party? We don't know. But what we do know is that the men dragging this powerless woman was doing it purely to use her as a puppet to trap Jesus. What do we do with her, Jesus? In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. After a deafening silence, while Jesus writes in the sand, he then says with the voice of eternal wisdom, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. And one by one, this woman would have heard the footsteps of all of the men leaving. Leaving Jesus to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this puddle of a woman. The only one who could condemn doesn't. Go now and leave your life of sin. She too is seen. She's loved, she's forgiven and invited to a whole new world of dignity and respect. And what about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet? This is another just gorgeous snapshot. Jesus and his disciples over at Mary and Martha's house. And Martha is busy doing what the culture would expect and she's prepping all of the food and getting herself busy. Mary has placed herself along with the other disciples at Jesus' feet learning. Well, Martha thinks that's not fair and so goes to Jesus to tell him so, to have that moment. Jesus, this isn't fair. And Jesus said, Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. What? Mary has chosen to sit with the men and nourish her soul with God's truth not busy preparing food to fill their bellies. Jesus is so countercultural. I just fall in love with him every time I read the Gospels and the more we understand of the culture that he is in, the absolutely more radical he is. This is the Christ of Christianity. The final snapshot today is the foundation of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus. And on the Sunday after Jesus was crucified, the women took the spices that they, they were going to deal with Jesus' body. That's what they were expecting. But they were met with an empty tomb and God's messenger saying that Jesus isn't there. He's been risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Now, all four Gospels record that the women are then given the instruction, either by the messenger or by Jesus himself, to go quickly and tell the disciples, go and tell my brothers, go tell his disciples, and go to my brothers and tell them. For this brief moment in salvation history, these women 
were the only ones to know the full truth about Jesus. They knew he wasn't in the tomb. They knew he had been brought back to life. And as they walked from the tomb to tell the brothers, they were the only ones holding this news that would change the world. And God trusted them to do that. God entrusted the women with the most precious news of all. This is even more remarkable when you know that this is in a time when a woman's woman's testimony was pretty worthless. Courts of law didn't put much weight on it at all, if any. But God put his stamp of approval on women being able to deliver a message in this profound way. The women delivered the news to the brothers and Luke chapter 24, 11 records their reaction. I think you'll like this. But the disciples did not believe the women <laughs> because their words seemed to them like nonsense. <laughs> Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Now, I love that detail because I love that that's honest. But I also loved that they were double-checking because that is absolutely what we all should be doing with everything that we hear. We need to double-check it. The men checked it out, found that the women were, what, what, what the women were saying was true and the Church of Christ was born. For over 50 years, I have been incredibly blessed to be in churches where, like this one, we are with people trying to live, like, live for Jesus and to love like Jesus. Sadly, there have been some unchrist-like moments in that time. And Lord knows I've caused some of them. But even in these beautiful places, there have been times when as a woman I felt less than. Some of them are funny, some of them are just a bit odd, but one of them certainly was a gut punch that left me sobbing for 30 minutes. Now, I know I've got off lightly, but I choose to focus on the Jesus we've just looked at, the Christ of our Christianity, who sees all. He sees the hidden. He knows all. He knows the hidden. And he loves all, including women. So I want to say sorry. I want to say sorry for the ways that women at this church or other churches have ever felt undervalued, unseen, or unloved. I want to say sorry for times in this church where a woman's voice has not been sought, listened to. I want to say sorry for times where our practices have been cruel or our words careless. I want to say sorry to anybody here who feels that you're in any way lesser because of your gender. And we need to say sorry 
Because that's not the way that Jesus treated women. It's not the way of Christ. Dorothy Sayer was a contemporary of Lewis, C.S. Lewis. She said this. One of the unfortunate truths about Christianity we have to acknowledge is over the centuries, many Christ followers have fallen far short of the standard that Jesus set in showing the worth and dignity of women. And she's so right that we as Christians have fallen far short of the standard that Jesus set for showing the dignity and the worth of women. I just want to close tonight by talking about two Christians who utterly and radically transformed the value and the worth of women in society and in the world. And they might shock you. The first one is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who loved and valued women. And that might shock you because you may have heard that Paul is a misogynist. Isn't he the guy who said that women should cover their heads? And isn't he the guy who said that women should be silent in church? And isn't he the guy who said that, that women should submit to their husbands? And you quote 1 Corinthians 14 about women being silent in church, or Ephesians 5 about wives submit to your husbands. I'm not denying any of those verses of Scripture. Paul said that. But that's not misogyny. You've got to understand the culture, the context. Do you understand that in the Jewish synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue, women had no value. They had no voice. They had, had no worth. And so when the Apostle Paul is talking about the gathering of God's people and he's inviting women to have a voice, that is countercultural. If you read your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 11 says that, that women are encouraged to, to prophesy in public in the church and to pray in the church and, and to encourage and to edify and to exhort and to admonish. And if I read my Bible, none of those spiritual gifts are gender specific. So for the first time in history, women have a voice in a public gathering that is beautiful and wonderful. If you're asking about the head coverings, that's just a way where if someone stands up in, in a public gathering, you can tell whether they're male or female. And 1 Corinthians 14 about the women being silent in church is in the context of, of weighing a prophecy against Scripture, and there's no embarrassment that that is the role of men. But in the church, women have a voice. Paul empowered women. He loved women. Remember Priscilla? Her, her gift was leadership. Her gift was teaching. It, it was Priscilla who was a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. It was Priscilla who, who discipled a man called Apollos, who was one of the great founders of the church. I think Paul elevated the status of women in the gathering. Remember Lydia? Lydia was that, that wealthy businesswoman that, that did in purple cloth. He lived in Philippi. When Paul went to Philippi, he went to find a synagogue. There was no synagogue, so he went to a place of prayer where he found these women praying, and he explained the gospel. And it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And so the first convert, the first convert in Europe was not a man, it was a woman. And the founder of the first church in Europe was not a man, it was a woman called Lydia. 
I could name all these women of the New Testament who had influence in the early church. Oh, but Paul, you're ducking the issue. Didn't, didn't the Apostle Paul tell wives to submit to their husbands? Yes, he did. But again, understand that word submit. You know, Jesus submitted to his father. Children submit to their parents. It's not a, a word of inferiority. It's a word of order. And actually, a stronger word in Greek is the word respect. Wives, respect your husbands because husbands are loving their wife as Christ loved the church. If you want to go down that line, Paul actually liberated women in marriage. Because before Christianity, wives were abused and treated as objects in marriage. And Paul is elevating the status and says to the husbands, love your wives. Paul's teaching on marriage protected wives against polygamy. It protected women against arranged marriages as early as 9, 10, 11 years old. And protected women against violence in marriage. When he says, love your wives, don't fight. So Paul elevated women, as did Peter. This is a verse for our culture. 1 Peter chapter 3, women, women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I find that so beautiful and liberating in a, a culture today that objectifies women. See, our world elevates physical beauty. But Christians should stand up for, for character above looks. For inner beauty above outward adornment. Because Christianity says that poor character is ugly and bitterness and bitching is ugly. But kindness and grace and gentleness and patience, that is so, so attractive. And I could go on, I could talk about all the amazing women of church history. Hannah Moore, who labored for the abolishment of slave trade. Amy Carmichael, that brave, bold missionary. Frances Willard, listen to this, led two million members of parliament in a movement to start daycare centers for working women. And I could talk about all the amazing women in this church. And my point is really simple, that Christianity empowered women and celebrated women, it never denigrated them. And this is what breaks my heart. What God says is beautiful. We have human beings, we, we, we've taken it and we've made it broken. We've taken a beautiful thing of men and women together and we've made it broken. God loves women, God values women. So what would God say to women today in this church. Please listen very carefully. He would say, women, you are loved. You have value. You have a voice. You have worth. You have dignity. You are uniquely and distinctly gifted. And you are a vital, essential part 
of this beautiful thing that's called the body of Christ, called the church. And so I am deeply, deeply, deeply sorry if at this church you've ever felt anything but valued and loved and worth something. Because God loves you and sees you and knows you and cherishes you. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating us so beautifully as male and female. In your image, in your likeness. Displaying your splendor, your glory, your worth. Father, forgive us for times when we have oppressed, suppressed, violated anybody. Any man, every, any woman. Forgive us for times when we as a church have not been a, a refuge for all people, regardless of age or stage or gender or sexuality or intellect. Father, may we as a church shine the glorious truth of Jesus into, into a world that needs to hear by the way that we treat and value all people. We ask that for Jesus' sake.